large class. We are in a, the midst of a series through James, and last week we launched into chapter 5, the final chapter of James, and this is a letter written to Christians calling them towards godly living, towards real faith that is visible and active. James begins chapter 5 by addressing you rich. We talked about this last week. And in that text, he declares God's righteous judgment against the rich for their idolatrous hearts and their oppression of the poor. Then in verse 7, James kind of switches gears here. Instead of addressing the oppressor, he's going to switch gears and start addressing the oppressed. And that's where our text takes us today. Last week, we took a look at the root sins involved in material idolatry which was hearts filled with ingratitude, selfishness, and even hatred, particularly when it comes to stewarding and receiving the blessings from God. As citizens of God's kingdom, we are called to view God's material blessings with contentment, with gratitude, and a desire to invest in his eternal kingdom, not our own. We also saw how the righteous person is called to sow peace even the, in the midst of that oppression because the righteousness, the righteousness that we are investing is, is, is eternal and an eternal treasure that will never perish and it's the inheritance of real value. But sowing peace is hard, even between fellow Christians at times. This too has been a major theme in this letter, how Christians treat each other especially how we talk to each other. So James continues in our passage today with an urgent call and reminder to all Christians in any century about why our citizenship matters, about why authentic faith is, is more than just knowing Jesus is Lord, but includes an attitude and a lifestyle which validates our citizenship. Even in the midst of oppression, in the midst of hardship, suffering, and pain. Again, it's really hard to sow peace when you're in pain. It's hard to maintain a godly character. So let's take a look in God's Word this morning and catch a glimpse as to why it's so vital. Our text today is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And in this text, my goal is to show us that faith established in the hope of Jesus' imminent return, displays patience in adversity and steadfastness of godly character. I would invite you to stand with me as we read our text this morning. We stand here at Timberland when we read God's word because we believe it comes with his full authority, that it is useful for teaching and correction and building us up in righteousness. And we want to treat it with the respect that it deserves. So we, again, we are in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired and that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, we ask that you would cut us with the word this morning, that it would pierce our hearts and our minds, and that we would be transformed in the process. Father, I pray that you would remove all distractions from this room so that we would have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is trying to teach us this morning. We dedicate every aspect of this message to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today begins with a therefore, and I was always taught to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. We've already mentioned how these Christians in our text were being exploited by the rich. We, we talked about how God views that exploitation, and, and Scripture leaves no ambiguity as to God's perspective on those who oppress and neglect the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Psalm 140.12 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. We went through that rather thoroughly last week. Verse 6 addresses the oppressor rich, saying, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous, as we went through, doesn't resist because he's sowing peace, like it says in James chapter 3. He's investing in kingdom treasure where it will not be destroyed by rust, corrosion, not be eaten by moth. And that treasure is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. But James didn't write this letter so that we could create wall art with pithy Bible sayings. His exhortations and encouragement comes with practical examples and discipleship, as we're going to see. In this passage, perhaps more so than anywhere else in this letter, we get a sense of urgency through some of the repetition. In five verses, James four times addresses the audience as brothers. And four times he calls them to patience. Anytime you're reading scripture and you hear these words repeated, it's telling you, pay attention. He really, really, really wants them to stop, listen, take notice, and follow through. Where does the strength come from to sow peace in the midst of oppression? How do we suppress the desire to fight back against injustice or when we feel like we've been wronged? James and the rest of God's word says it's about the condition of your heart. Verse 8 contains a powerful command. It says, establish your hearts. The word establish has has multiple inferences to it. But in this passage, it, it denotes a foundational base, the foundation. Don't lose your foundation. Don't lose your resolution, your commitment from when you first heard the gospel and believed. Why does he say this? 
because these Christians were facing significant persecution and hardship. The notion that we establish our hearts is important to mention. Because in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul writes, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he, Christ, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Paul says it is God, it is Christ who establishes our hearts blameless in holiness before God. Why? Because it is only the righteousness of Christ in us that makes it even remotely possible for us to be holy. Hebrews 12 declares Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith. But we're also called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, like it says in Philippians 2. So which is it? Do we establish our hearts, or does Christ establish our hearts? Well, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And that's really the whole point of James's letter. Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. And he establishes his righteousness in us through saving grace. We then partner with the Holy Spirit to grow that righteousness, to become transformed so that our faith is authentic and that it's visible in the way we obey, in the way we act, in the way we speak, in the way we invest, how we trust God with our plans, how we persevere. James ends verse 8 with the why. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Some, some versions will say that the, the return of the Lord is near or the coming of the Lord is near. This is why James has such a sense of urgency in this passage. And it's pretty exciting. Twice, we as believers are called to remember Christ is coming back one day. But what does it mean his return is at hand or, or near? The nearness of Christ's return is a common theme in the New Testament, mentioned in, in Romans 13, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 4, 1 John 2, and just a ton of other places in the New Testament. And, and it's always this common theme of the day of judgment, the, the, the day is near, Christ's return is imminent. But almost 2,000 years have passed. So are we supposed to take the imminent return of Christ literally? Are we supposed to take it seriously? Did these New Testament writers get it wrong? This line of thought misunderstands the work of Christ. Nearness is not necessarily immediacy. Nearness means little now stands in the way before it comes to fulfillment. One author put it this way. In relation to the whole process overall, the day of justice and judgment is not far off. The bulk of all that needed to happen beforehand has indeed happened. Jesus came in his incarnation, died, rose again, and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. Nothing else remains on God's calendar before Jesus' return. We are at the final stages in the last days. The coming of Jesus was, for James, near. It remains near for us 2,000 years later. All that remains is our obedience to take this gospel to every tribe, every tongue, nation, and people 
as Jesus foretold in Matthew 24, 14. So in terms of God's grand picture of redemption, there's nothing else to do. So yes, it's incredibly near, and that responsibility is also in our laps as we obey the command to take this gospel. And this nearness, the hope of Christ's imminent return, is the grounds for our standing firm. It's our motivation for being prepared, for establishing our hearts. Jesus says as much throughout the entire chapter of Matthew 25. The entire chapter describes aspects of the end of days. The first is the ten virgins analogy. Five were foolish and unprepared for how long it would take for the bridegroom to arrive. And five were wise and prepared for the wait and entered the party, while the foolish, the unprepared, were sent away. Next is the talents parable, which directly points to how we establish our hearts through our obedience and our investments. Three servants are given money from the master, and two invest wisely and double the income. But the foolish one buries it in a field to keep it safe, not even bothering to deposit it in a bank so that it could accrue interest. The two diligent and wise servants who took the blessings from the master, used them, invested them in the kingdom, entered into the master's joy. And the foolish servant who, who took this gift from God, from the master, and hid it, is cast out into outer darkness. Immediately after these two parables, Jesus speaks about the final judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. The goats inherit eternal fire prepared for them because they were phonies. And the sheep, the authentic believer, the ones who prepared and invested in God's kingdom, inherit the kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. Kingdom citizens live out their faith in anticipation of Jesus' return and prepare and invest accordingly. And James, in this passage, is calling Christians to have faith in the process for establishing our hearts. And this requires a lot of patience. Four times our passage calls us to have patience. Verse 7 says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. For those of you not familiar with Middle Eastern agricultural practices, probably most of us, I had to Google it, late summer is the time for planting as the early rains occur in October-November. Those are the first rains. Other than perhaps some weeding and some pruning, the farmer has no control over the crop and was utterly reliant on the late rains in April-May. So for the, 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 the success or failure of his crop was contingent on the second rain. Feast or famine because of those rains. So that waiting could be quite agonizing, particularly if the past years had been lean. This farming analogy points us to a fancy theological word called sanctification. Every Christian's favorite word. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affection, dispositions, and virtues. It does not mean that sin is instantly eradicated in our lives, but it's also more than, than a counteraction in which sin is merely restrained or repressed without being progressively destroyed. That's what sanctification is. Our sin nature progressively being killed through the work of the Holy Spirit, through our obedience, through that partnership. Sanctification is a real, authentic, visible transformation, not just the appearance of one. It's the whole theme of the letter. This is what James is directing us to. The process by which we bring God glory as we, progressive, as we are being progressively transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And this process is hard because it means dying to ourselves like Paul wrote in Romans 12.1. It's also hard because it requires us to patiently wait for God's justice to be exercised upon those doing the oppressing. The process whereby we are being sanctified lies on the path of suffering. This is an extremely unpopular idea in our comfort-crazy culture. But this hardship isn't without purpose. Paul wrote in Romans 5.3, We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And James, always the practical pastor, gives us examples of godly character to, to show us what this process looks like. The first is in verse 10. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Study your Old Testament history, guys. There's some crazy stuff in here. For instance, Ezekiel and Micah, two minor prophets, were martyred. Amos, another one, was tortured and then martyred. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Isaiah was sawn in half. And in James' own lifetime, John the Baptist was arrested and then beheaded because of speaking in the name of the Lord. Then James mentions Job, a righteous man who experienced the loss of everything, his children, his wealth, his health. And what was he left with? A bitter wife and really foolish friends. But he remained steadfast and faithful and received God's mercy and compassion because of that steadfastness. James wants us to see and understand several things through these examples. First is that steadfastness produced from real faith will be blessed. James says, behold, we consider blessed those who remained steadfast. Why? Well, he already answered this all the way back in James chapter 1, verse 12, which we looked at several months ago. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those 
who love him. We don't suffer just for suffering's sake. Once again, James is reflecting on the words of Christ from Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Trials reveal the authenticity of our faith. And if it's authentic, those trials will produce endurance and character and hope. And what is that hope? That hope is in God's justice and his timing in his return. It's hope in the harvest to come. James begins this letter with this concept again back in chapter 1. When he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Wow, that's kind of harsh, James. How do we do that? How do we count it joy when we receive trials? Because we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a reason behind it. There's a purpose behind it. And it's us being sanctified us being refined to the image of Christ. He continues, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, talking about the righteousness that comes from Christ. The second thing James wants us to see by giving us these two examples is that suffering, hardship, persecution, oppression, none of those are new. None of those are brand new concepts to this this first century church, none of those are brand new concepts to the 21st century church. James is encouraging these Christians to see their situation isn't unique. To have a a larger perspective beyond themselves, how trials, injustice, injustice, injustice are indicative of, of what it means to be righteous in God's eyes. Paul says as much in his second letter to Timothy when he tells him, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is still true today. Even if you are not experiencing persecution from man, we have a spiritual enemy who is relentless in his attack against God's people by by sharing lies with us, by distracting us with busy schedules, by, by... allowing us to have all these fancy, shiny toys that get in the way of us worshiping God, like we read about in the first part of James. No one in this room is immune to pain, suffering, and loss. For those set apart by God, we recognize the fallen state of our world is caused by sin and perpetuated by the father of lies, our adversary. But God is magnified and glorified by our faithfulness in the midst of the struggle. Because we are then an example to the spiritual oppression of this world that we are kingdom citizens. Our citizenship is valid. The ultimate example of this, of course, is Christ himself who suffered not just a horrendous death, but took the full force of God's wrath against sin on our behalf. We need to really think clearly how we view suffering. Because if we have this mindset of of it's something that we should completely avoid, or if we have the mindset that we're suffering because we did something wrong, 
Sometimes God will discipline us, but if all we see of suffering is, I did something wrong, we are missing the ultimate suffering, which was for the ultimate good, which was the cross. James is telling his audience, take courage, remain steadfast, because it is the steadfast, the patient through affliction, who will experience the Lord's compassion and his, his mercy and receive the eternal reward, the crown of life, eternal life. So what does this patience and steadfastness look like? Again, James gives us examples in our text, which is nice. He, James was an awesome pastor. It's like a three-point sermon right there. The farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth. The evidence of what was planted will grow and be sanctified by the storms and the trials. And like so much of this letter, James points towards our speech, our tongue, as the conduit for the fruit in our hearts. Again, giving us two examples of how the authenticity of our faith will be revealed through the integrity of our speech. James writes, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's all too easy when facing ongoing pressures and trials, especially injustices, to turn against one another. We take, we take out our frustrations on each other. We, we vent our discontent. And, and let's face it, we complain about each other's actions. Sometimes we even complain about, well, why, why does this Christian seem to have everything going easy, and why is everything so hard for me? Again, looking at blessings and suffering as though it was some kind of a scale based on our behavior. James is saying, um, no, don't do that. James has already warned us about the destructive nature of the tongue. In chapter 1, verse 26, he wrote, if anyone thinks he is righteous... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is what? Worthless. Jesus uses the same word, worthless, describing the servant in the parable with the talents in Matthew 25. This is why there's such a sense of urgency in James's tone. He says, Make it real. Our motivation for living a life of, of integrity, both in action and in words, is the nearness of Christ's return. The judge, Christ our Lord, is at the door, which is about as close as you can get to the house. The handle is about to turn, and so we are to speak to one another in such a way that we would not be ashamed if the judge was in the room. Reality check. Is the presence of God already in the room? In the Holy Spirit? Yes. He's, he's reminding us to be cognizant of our citizenship. Our grumbling against one another matters to the judge. Not in the sense that we will somehow disqualify ourselves from eternal life. But there is a clear implication here that Jesus is greatly displeased and offended with us when we grumble against each other. Why? 
Because it affects our testimony. And our testimony is, is what we show to the world who we belong to, what citizenship we actually claim. Just like Jesus declares in John 13, 35, they will know you are my disciples. Why? By your love for each other. It's really hard to love somebody and grumble about them at the same time. It doesn't work. The second example comes in verse 12. James writes, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Once again, we see how much of this epistle acts as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James isn't suddenly switching topics here. By including this verse in here, he's, he's, he's showing us, he's pointing out how citizenship in God's kingdom will display integrity in our words by the consist, showing the consistency between what we believe and how we act. The swearing of oaths is another example of the double-mindedness that had been characterizing many of the readers in his original audience undermining the credibility of their Christian confession. Not to, be, not to be crude, but in our culture, how often do we hear, some, hear somebody say, I swear to God? Think about it for a second. Usually, let's be honest, usually it's in the context of some kind of anger or, or revenge or an action that you're promising to take. And so you're being extremely emphatic about it. That's the kind of speech James is talking about here. Genuine faith doesn't need to swear an oath to validate a promise or a statement. We shouldn't need to emphasize the truthfulness of any part of our speech because all of our speech ought to be true and trustworthy. Again, the integrity of our words, like the grumbling, provide evidence, provide the fruit of what is in our hearts. James is encouraging us to resist rash, flippant speech spoken in, in the heat of emotion, in the heat of the moment, and let our words be flavored with what is actually in our heart. Truth is the norm for those who have real faith not the exception. The true disciple of Christ, established in the hope of Jesus' imminent return, endures hardship and oppression with patience and remains steadfast in that hope. And then we see that the evidence of that patience and, and steadfastness will be heard in our words, in our attitudes, and in our integrity of speech. This, in turn, will be reflected 
in our patience and steadfastness as we cling to the hope and the promise of Christ's return. It's, it's like a circular argument. You guys catch that? Establish yourselves so that you can be patient and steadfast. And when you're steadfast and patient in the trial, it establishes your heart. It's not a linear progression. It's, it's a constant transformation. That's what sanctification is. Testing, built up. Testing, built up. What happens when we stop establishing our hearts, when we stop living out our faith as though the Lord's return was near? I'll tell you what happens. We stop investing in things of eternal value. We stop looking to see how we've been blessed to expand God's kingdom. And instead, we look at the blessings we receive from God as a means of expanding our kingdom. We disrupt the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit when we stop, when we, when we set aside this urgency that James is pointing us to about Christ's return. You know what else happens? We become impatient. We grumble. We complain. And we forget that the blessings of our Lord requires patience and godly character in the midst of the hardship. In essence, our faith is revealed for what it actually is. Worthless. Our hearts are established through the suffering and the trials and the hardships because our hearts have been established in the, the, the reality, the promise, the hope that our faith is not in vain. Paul says that we are the most to be pitied if, if the resurrection isn't real. If Christ isn't coming back, our faith is the, the most pitiful faith on, in, in the world. But if we are rooted, if we have rooted our hearts in, in the belief, the reality that Jesus is coming back, and that that day of judgment will occur, and that there is an inheritance for everyone. One of the inheritances you don't want. If that is not the foundation of our hearts, as James is saying, if that is not the foundational base level, if we forget that, if we take our, our hearts and our minds away from that focus, we are setting ourselves up to be deceived. Faith established in the hope of Jesus' imminent return displays patience in adversity and steadfastness of godly character. Our Lord is near. He is returning. And so as we wrap this up this morning, I would leave you with a couple of questions. Does your life reflect this belief? Does, your, does the way that you are investing your resources, your time, your energy, reflect whose kingdom you are building. It does. I promise you it does. It's either God's kingdom or yours. Are you establishing your heart for the return of King Jesus, or has his nearness been lost to the day-to-day -day tasks and your plans for the future? That was back in chapter 4. I would ask you to take a moment before we take communion. I would ask you to take a moment and reflect. That is what James is saying in this text. 
Reflect, examine yourselves. Do not be deceived. Is the fruit in your life evidence to where your heart has been established? James pleads this case in the letter. He says, Jesus is returning. Live accordingly. Examine yourselves for a moment before we take communion. We thank you for the reminder of what you have accomplished in your plan. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be born a man like us so that he could experience hardship and suffering on our behalf. As scripture says, we do not have, we do not serve a God who doesn't understand what we go through, who doesn't understand temptation, doesn't understand suffering and hardship. But our Savior pleads our case because he knows. Father, I pray that you would set aside all selfishness in our hearts, that we would establish our hearts in in the truth of your return, but also in the day-to-day tasks and the struggles and the hardships and the loss. Father, may the hope that we have in, in, in our inheritance overwhelm us so that it would, it would be expressed in our speech and the way that we treat each other and in the way that we make plans and invest, that it would be contagious to the world around us, that they would ask, what is this hope that you have? And I pray that we would answer It's in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing. I pray that you would continue to to pierce our hearts this morning. That our lives would bring you glory in the way that we, we behave, in the way that we speak, in the way we treat each other. Continue sanctifying us. In Jesus' name. I'm inviting the